Playfield and Associates is based in Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Gadigal elders and to traditional custodians of country throughout Australia. Clairefield and Associates. I'm Claire and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 90 and this week I was joined by a truly inspirational university leader, Professor Braden Hill, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Students, Equity and Indigenous at Edith Cowan University. If you want to understand why the voice is important, why all universities should be supporting it, and where and how universities, and I would argue other institutions, should be working to deliver more for students from underrepresented groups, not least First Nations students, you will really enjoy my discussion with Braden. As you'll hear in this interview, I reference a number of times his speech at last year's TEXA conference, and we both speak about how moved we were by Professor Megan Davis's speech at this year's Universities Australia conference. I've included links to the videos of both speeches in the notes for this episode, and they're really worth um, checking out if you haven't seen them. I've also included in the notes a link to a resource developed by Western Sydney University from one of their staff webinars and available on YouTube, explaining the voice, and um, it's a resource that they're happy to share. Thanks to Cherie Diaz, their Executive Director, Education Innovation, for sharing it with me. And now, here's Brayden. It is my very great pleasure to be joined on the podcast today by Professor Braden Hill, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Students, Equity and Indigenous at Edith Cowan University. And if you weren't at or watching last year's TEXA conference, you missed a fantastic presentation. And I'm going to um, ask Braden to expand on a few points he made in it, but I will also include a link to it in the notes for this episode because you really ought to watch it. So, Braden, that's a very long introduction. Thank you very much for making the time available. And now in that speech that you gave at TEXA conference, I really liked that part of what you did was to talk about your background and your current role. Those are questions I always ask my guests. So welcome. Tell us about your career and your current role. Yeah, thanks very much, Claire. I'm so excited to be part of this. So thanks for having me. So a little bit about me, I guess my journey into higher education really had a kind of alternative pathway journey, if you like. So I was ATAR failure or TEEs it was back then and I came through a wonderful bridging program at Murdoch University at the time and I always wanted to be a teacher I was always really clear about that always always had that ambition and so that's kind of how I started my my journey in higher education if you like 
Um, at the moment, as you said, I'm, I'm the DVC, Student Equity Indigenous, which is an amazing job. If I got to pick a job that I'd really want to do, I think it's exactly the kind of um, title I would pick for myself. So I'm very privileged and very grateful that I get to do that. I think ECU is a university I'm really proud to be a part of. I think the values, it's a very values-driven university and one that aligns really closely both personally and professionally for me. And I think the purpose to transform lives and enrich society is one that I've lived. And I think being able to work in that space is is a real privilege. And so I feel very grateful to to be in universities and be in a role like this. Um, so as I said, I was a high school teacher. I did a Bachelor of Secondary Education. I was specialising in English and what they now, I think, in schools talk about as being Hass. But when I graduated, there weren't there weren't very many jobs. So I kind of found myself working casually within schools, but also within the university space. And I kind of got involved by doing some curriculum design. So looking at transition pedagogy from secondary schooling into university. And so that kind of got me interested in, in that environment. And through that, I, I really got engaged with the centre that was a really important part of my educational journey, the Kulbadi Centre at Murdoch University, and started to become involved in the development and the delivery of their enabling program, KTRAC, which I'm really proud to say 2017 won an AAUT award. So it's a really great program. Um, but it's also the one that I came through. And I think that that was a really nice full circle for me. And I, I, I really enjoyed being able to give that give back in, in that sense. So, you know, typical kind of academic career, I guess, after that point, I had a couple of sessional roles, a couple of fixed-term contracts, until I got a, a full-time lecturing position at Kulbadi, which was fantastic. In that role, I did some teaching at the regional campuses. I did some stuff within the Indigenous Centre and in the School of Arts. But it was from there where I kind of took my journey into leadership. I kind of moved into a professional role because the head of the centre at the time had moved on and... I think we're all sitting around a table and said, well, who's going to run us now? And I think I had most fingers pointing at me. So that I was really, really delighted about that. And so that was kind of a, an interesting step in my career. But it, it meant that as head of centre, while I transitioned out of academic work in a kind of teaching and learning sense, uh, that move into professional management, I think, was so important. And I think what people don't really realise about Indigenous centres is that they many of them operate as mini universities. And I think you have to know the business of a university from kind of prospective student recruitment all the way through to research and alumni. And I think it's also it's often undervalued in terms of the leadership that and and the skills that you learn in a space like that. So I did that for about three and a half years. Then I was in, appointed into a director role at Murdoch and I kind of kept my same remit, but also added some work around the medical service, the counseling service, disability support. And it was in that role I, I picked up kind of co-leadership and sponsorship of Athena Swan and, and started to kind of move more concertedly into the equity space and took on stuff around the university's response to sexual harassment and sexual assault. So um, that was a, a great opportunity. Professor Romy Lawson, who was my boss at the time, is now at Flinders, really kind of um, pulled me into that space and I was super grateful for it. And then ECU came knocking. And so they had at the time, a pro-vice-chancellor equity indigenous role that was also their head of centre. So I came across here in 2019 and it was really hard to leave Murdoch because I had fabulous teams, fa fabulous colleagues, but it was probably a right time for me. So yeah, came came across to ECU. And you know, while I left Murdoch, what I'm really proud of is when I look back, a lot of the teams that I worked with or the leaders that 
I managed are now senior exec in their own right. And I think I'm really proud of that. And I think leaders in, in our sector should most certainly pay really considered attention to who comes next to make sure that we're doing really great sustained work. So anyway, um, did that role for since 2019. And then earlier uh, in the middle of last year, Angela Hill, who was our Deputy Vice Chancellor of Education, she finished up at ECU and they she had a math, massive job and they split it in two and I got the students aspect of it. So yeah, basically I went from the PVC to the DVC and now I have, as you said, the students' equity Indigenous stuff as part of my portfolio. And I'm really fortunate I get to work with wonderful people like Professor Rowena Harper, who's our DVCE. And um, yeah, we we love our jobs. We have a great time at the institution. But yeah, that's that's kind of my journey. It's a little of a all over the place kind of journey, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. I shake my head at the last comment about an all over the place kind of journey, Brayden. I think you've exemplified the power of education, right? That second chance opportunity and look where it's taken you, but also the impact that individuals can have. And you've spoken about some people who were important on your journey, but also your own legacy as a leader in the roles that you've had so far. And I can't wait to see what comes next or be great things that you're doing at the moment. And I'm going to turn now specifically to some of the points that you made, again, in that really impressive speech at the TEXA conference. There were two that really stuck with me. And so I'm going to ask you to unpack them both for listeners. The first one was when you called out that equity is not the destination, it's the journey towards a fairer future. And I'd love it if you could explain that, especially in relation to some of the points that you made about the demographics of university leadership in Australia. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Look, I think in in the various roles that I've had and, and my experience within universities, what I tend to think is that there's a real kind of fundamental misunderstanding about what equity, equity actually means and um, what it means in practice and that it is actually a practice. It's something that you have to do to get towards equality. I think we conflate those two concepts particularly. And I think what's tended to happen in Australia especially is what we what we do is lump EDI into this kind of vague category of activities that is still, I think, seen as being peripheral to what, what is quote unquote core business within a university. But I think we have to remember that equity is different to diversity, which is different to inclusion. They mean different things. But my concern within universities is that because we're not very specific about what these things mean, it's allowed to be this amorphous kind of widely misunderstood and poorly defined piece of work. And I think I mentioned in the Texa talk the issue is what we have is power within our sector resides in quite a homogenous group. If we think about our vice chancellors, governing councils, our senior exec, predominantly white, mostly male, not too many share that they they have lived experience with a disability and kind of in their 50s and 60s. It's, it's a, a pattern that we see, you know, UK, US, etc. But it's not to say that that doesn't mean we can't do great work. It just means that strategy, decision-making, the priorities that we set ourselves, they all sit with a, a kind of strikingly similar group that I don't think often have a strong professional or personal grasp of what equity means, what diversity means, and what inclusion means. And I think there are various, varying levels of degrees of comfort which with each of those concepts, if you like. And I think if you think about Australia, 
we've been a, a sector that's been largely homogenous since you know the, the University of Sydney sort of was established. Um, but I think what is most critical for us to think about is that this sits in a stark contrast to the students that we teach, the students we supervise and support in the here and now. And so while we talk about you know the importance of diversity, we're not really seeing it at the top layers of leadership. And as I said, it's not to say we don't have phenomenal leaders doing great work in the space. It just means that I think we then have a lower level of understanding about equity as a practice that leads to equal outcomes. And it just means that we have a kind of a sense that maybe this isn't important or maybe this isn't core to, to what our sector should be doing. And I think we we really need to understand that equity is about allocating resources to most need. It's about considering where educational outcome gaps are and, and really focusing on that. And I think I mentioned this. I mean, if we as a sector were really serious about closing some of the gaps in Indigenous student outcomes, we would probably as a sector be putting more money in to supplement what the Commonwealth does through specialist schemes, but we don't. But an equitable approach would be how do we invest more fully in that space and do it properly? So, you know, equity takes work. You need to do something. Diversity, I think we're more comfortable with. We get that we need to have, you know, generally broad representation. And we do this pretty well, just not so much at the top. And so we need to think about active recruitment and being proactive around really being really intentional about how we get greater diversity into our, our our leadership circles. And I think we're pretty good around, you know, which, well, I won't say pretty good, but we we do have a much more mature conversation about gender equity than what we do around some of the other areas. And I think there's lessons to learn from some of the good work in that, but still a, a long way to go. And then inclusion, I, I think we, we kind of get creating supportive environments, you know, staff networks, et cetera, where everybody feels a sense of belonging. But my point is, they are all different things. Whilst they're interconnected, um, they're concepts that mean different things. And I think as a sector where where we don't get that yet wholly, I don't think we fully understand that. And, you know, in reflecting on leadership, <clears throat> because not all of our university leaders have that lived experience of the importance of equity, it's not always front of mind. So um, that's not just an Australia thing. We see that in the UK. I think I read something the other day that 94% of VCs in the UK are white. And US is kind of slightly better, but still a long way, long way behind. So it kind of paints a really homogenous picture of who we are, despite the fact that the students that are coming into our space, more and more diverse, but more importantly, are expecting their universities to understand these concepts, take them on board and really make it part of their educational experience. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned that maybe we're not there, but we're, we're making some good strides. Well, we're definitely not there. I think, and uh, and I'm really hopeful that, you know, we're all got our hopes on the Accord panel and their process, but the Minister has made clear that he wants to see a focus on equity. So let's see where they land their, their interim report and that the sector responds in that kind of more deliberative and purposeful way that you've called out that is needed. One of the related things that you talked about in in your speech was the need for universities, and here I'm going to say, and, you know, vet listeners, this applies in the vet sector too, I think, to stop looking only inwardly when it does come to equity. If they, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, they tend to look within the institution 
and that in fact people need to be understanding the impact of schooling on the further education and life chances of both First Nations students but other students who are underrepresented in higher education. You talked about the diminishing student pipeline. Can you unpack that for listeners? Yeah, so I think in my experience, universities, when they see, if I talk from about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, for example, I think there's this almost assumption that it's an intrinsic thing, that there's an educational gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids. But of course, there are a whole range of things at play that we need to be conscious of. And I think this is sort of the point I was trying to make is that my view is that we have a role to play in the entirety of our educational landscape as universities. I don't think we're just a kind of sit around just waiting for students to ruck up on our campus and then we kind of go, okay, let's see how you how you go. We we ultimately teach the teachers that teach our kids in schools and we teach the people who become principals, who play leading roles into really transforming local communities. And I think because of that, we have a major role in addressing the educational inequities I spoke about in the Texas talk. So when when you look at NAPLAN, as, 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 as fraught as it might be, you can see reading standards for Aboriginal kids are not that far off in year three, but by the time you get to year 12 attainment rates, there's significant drop-off. Now, it's not because Aboriginal kids, you know, their, their intelligence diminishes or whatever. There's a whole range of factors going on. And I think at universities, despite the role we play in really feeding the talent into the broader educational landscape, it's like we forget our role in that. And then what that means is that we have a very sometimes deficit view of the young people and not so young people who come to our campuses. So I think we do have a role to play in working collaboratively with schools and to work with them and partner with them on these really tricky issues at ECU. We we do a lot of that through our alternative pathways. We have a fantastic program called Uni Prep in Schools, which is very much engaged in low SES schools around providing university pathways where we just don't have ATAR, right? And I think, you know, we, we forget these inequities in our educational system where for some kids, where, where you live and what your parents do still decides whether or not you go to university. I think the Accord and the Minister are really, really aware to that. But the thing that always worries me is that when we look at the literature around educational journeys for Aboriginal kids, particularly, racism plays a really significant role. And I think uh, a lot of literature points to default, sorry, VET being the default best option for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. And university, especially for some of our non-Indigenous educators, is seen as a step too far for Aboriginal kids. And that's not something I know through the literature. It's also just something I know myself. I mean, career counsellors guided me towards VET because they learnt in university that Aboriginal kids are more hands-on. Now, I think I said, there's no way this gay boy in year, year 11 was going to go off and become a mechanic. I wanted to be a teacher. And I think, again, we don't we despair at the educational outcomes but we we don't really want to pay attention to the elephant in the room around racism and i think the other aspect that that worries me is that indigenous kids have a, a lower kind of self concept around their academic abilities but it's still higher than some of the non-indigenous teachers and i think that's just catastrophic for us if we're really really keen to address some of these matters in terms of the role we play in the educational landscape, then I think we probably need to be a little bit more proactive, thinking outside of our campuses and thinking about the roles that we play. 
in our in our society in our communities and i think we're losing that a little bit sometimes and just hoping for the best as opposed to actually being part of the catalyst for change in our community and i think that's the role we need to remember and i think the accord hopefully is going to be a really good catalyst for that that re-remembering if that makes sense it certainly does and really really powerful points that you make just want to clarify hopes doesn't sound too defensive because i totally take your point about the racist assumptions of you go and study vet it'll be better for you so my point in opening up was I think vet providers need to do more in their community to help people before they get to, you know, vet or higher education. But you're absolutely right about that, those those terrible assumptions. You know, speaking as someone whose background was in the vet sector, vet enrolls well above, you know, proportion of the population of Indigenous students but it does the most terrible thing by putting them all into low-level courses. So there are all sorts of assumptions which need to be challenged within our institutions and they need to be much more active in terms of engaging with students so that you're not seeing that terrible fall-off in the gap in in attainment and achievement as kids progress um, through school. Absolutely. Uh, Now, hopping down off my little hobby horse, but I asked you, you come on the podcast and really what I've asked you to do is the greatest hits from a really magnificent speech and you've done a fantastic job. But I wanted to also obviously give you the chance to share other ideas or issues that you may not have had time to, to share in that particular speech that I heard and which obviously I found really moving and impressive. So the floor is yours. Anything else that you wanted to share, provoke, encourage listeners with? Yeah, look, I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't touch on the kind of contemporary political space we find ourselves in around the referendum on the voice to parliament. And I think it kind of goes to the point we were talking about, Claire, around how universities tend to to focus inward and limit their, their institutional responsibilities to the confines of their campus boundaries. I think we're seeing some evidence of that in regards to the voice to parliament and and our sectors thinking through that. I think what's been really interesting, ECU publicly support the Yes campaign, and I think that's a really important gesture, given that we teach more than 30,000 students, 3,500 staff. But probably more important is that whilst we understand that's a really important values alignment to who we are as an institution, we're really delighted to be able to play an, an educational role in that campaign and and what we're seeing in a lot of the the research at the moment is just Australians generally just don't understand the the constitution let alone the voice to parliament proposal so we've been really delighted to be a part of that and I know the sector's taking some action on that but I think it'd be really important for us as leaders to think through what does a courageous position on this look like for a university sector and and Professor Megan Davis, I think she gave a really, really sharp call at University of Australia saying that you can't remain apolitical on this. It's silence is a is a political decision. I think that's really important to record um, to recognize. And I think the reason why it's important is more and more the students that we we are taking in now, um, the kind of Gen Zs who are coming in, the younger kind of millennials, there's an expectation that universities are going to be across these issues and they're going to be engaging. And I think I made a reference to it in the Texas talk where our our students that we see coming into our sector now, 
they're probably more alive to issues around equity, social justice than what some of our academics are because they're learning it in spaces that, like TikTok, like social media, where they're able to engage in these ideas. These are ideas that often we only had the benefit if we went to university where we could actually engage with it. But there's an expectation now that that our academics are going to know these debates, going to be able to talk about it. And with the voice to parliament, it's really interesting. You see a very clear demographic split between kind of older voters and younger voters around support for this. Um, So it really does make us, I think, it forces us or encourages us to think about who we are as institutions and how we position ourselves, because I do think we becoming a little bit risk averse on matters of socio-political importance. And for me, the voice department I'm a supporter of, I wouldn't say it's the perfect example, but I guess my point would be when we still have so few Indigenous leaders the executive decision-making table or at around our councils, I'd probably call on some of my, my, you know, senior leaders in universities to think about what's their role in educating and what's their role in social change when it comes to such a monumental decision like the one that we're going to have in October. Uh, and the reason why I think that that is really important for, for us to consider is if at the end of the day, well, through the process, we're going to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people really battling in terms of mental health concerns that are going to pop up, well-being issues that come around the so-called debate. But I guess the answer is, the final point would be, if at the end of the referendum it ends up being a no vote, are we all going to be comfortable about the role that we've played in getting to that outcome? And I think I just encourage our sector to think about that and think about the 20-odd thousand Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander students we have in our sector to really think about what's the role the universities can play and what's the role that we can play in society and what is a really important, important political discussion. An absolutely vital political discussion. Um, Brayden, you've really ended um, where the conversation started on leadership. Like you, I was incredibly moved by Professor Megan Davis's speech at the UA conference, and I will include a link to that in the notes for this episode if people don't have it. I find it completely shocking that something as critically important as recognising First Nations people properly in our constitution and government talking to them about policy decisions that change their lives could become something that the university sector won't say is a good thing and won't stand up and support. I mean, you can hear in my voice, I'm quite upset about it. I just think it's completely shocking. So if there are some links, we'll include those in the notes for this episode um, and help people who might be listening and haven't formed a view yet to, to get their heads around some of the issues. It has been such an enormous pleasure to have some time with you and get your thoughts, and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Claire. It's delightful to be with you. Thank you.